You're listening to audio from Journey Bible Church. Join us every week for sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you would like to connect with us, head to journeybible.org connect. Good morning, church. Hope you all are having a, a good morning. Um, I'm using a handheld because um, probably like some of you, um, I'm feeling the allergies. Anybody else out there feeling the allergies coming on? The, I cut my grass twice last Sunday. I had ignored it thinking it was still brown. And then in one week, it grew like six feet and, uh, and turned green in bunches of the yard. And so I had to double cut it, bag it, and um, I haven't been the same ever since. Um, and I'm hoping that won't be uh, true once I get all the uh, allergy medicines uh, going through my system. But I don't know about you, but Friday night I, I was uh, driving back um, by um, Heritage Park. And, you know, it has been kind of closed up, but man, it was full of soccer players. How many of you have noticed the return of spring sports? How many, how many of you have noticed that there's baseball going on? Uh, how many of you feel like you need to plant flowers in, in, your, in your gardens? Um, we feel the busyness of spring, and it feels like every year, this time of year, Holy Week just creeps up on me and takes me by surprise. The week that probably is the high point of the Christian calendar the place that gets the greatest focus in all of scripture. And so I just kind of want to remind you as we, you know, enter into this week, it actually starts with this Sunday, Holy Week, and ends with next Sunday, Easter Sunday. And Holy Week, all in between, is a week where as followers of Jesus, we should be reflecting and evaluating and, and celebrating and mourning, um, we have, should have a, a wide range of emotions and thoughts. And Holy Week, um, this Sunday, we're going to work through a passage which talks about the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Um, and then on Monday, that's the day that he came and cleansed the temple. On Tuesday is the day he gave the great Olivet Discourse, where he explains uh, about the future of the kingdom's arrival to earth and the tribulation and the things that God has in store in his second coming. Wednesday is the day that he was anointed with pure nard uh, for his burial, and it was the day that he uh, was betrayed, um, or I, I guess that was the day that um, he was, that Judas made the decision and made the agreement with the Pharisees to betray him. Thursday is the great teaching in John 13 through 17 in the upper room and the celebration of the Last Supper, the Passover meal. Friday are the trials and the crucifixion of Christ. Saturday, the disciples are in hiding, fearing for their lives that they may be arrested and executed for treason and following Jesus. And then Sunday, everything turns on its head when Jesus rises from the dead on the third day. So we have a, a wonderful week in store for us. And I kind of want to set the tone for us this morning, just to give you a moment to re just kind of pause in your busy week, pause in all the activities, pause in all the spring chores. And let's turn our attention to the scriptures 
And let's take some time today. This will be one of my applications to reflect and to evaluate on the great work that Christ has done for us and on the great work he still has to do in us. Let's pray together. God, we just pause and ask that you would help us to reorient our souls away from just pure activity to the spiritual realities that encompass who we really are. Help us, Lord, not to just have a to-do list of things to get done, but help us to have a spirit that's pliable and surrendered and willing to be used by you. Please draw our attention to what you have done on our behalf this week. Help us to feel the range of emotions like the disciples felt them this week. But most of all, help us to have the determination, Jesus, to live out our faith as you followed your calling and your purpose. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 19. That's where we want to focus this morning. We're going to be picking up in verse 28, and we're going to work our way all the way through uh, verse 44. And each of the Gospels have a different way of presenting um, the work of Christ during Holy Week. And I, I just want to remind you that um, each they're not necessarily chronological in the way they present things. And so many scholars have gone and put together kind of a harmony of the Gospels that put everything into a perspective. And that's a great thing. Like if you want something fun to do this week, um, to get the full picture is get online and pull up a harmony of the Gospels, say in the NIV, New International Version, and read through all of the scripture passages in their chronological order as they relate to this week. But we want to look at three things in this passage this morning. First, the determination of Jesus. Second, the declaration of Jesus. And third, the compassion of Jesus. So verse 28 is going to tell us this, this first thing, a whole point in one verse. Don't you love it when the preacher can condense a whole point just to one verse? Jesus Christ is journeying to Jerusalem, and he's, he's not a tourist traveling. He is a savior determined to fulfill his mission. Jesus and his disciples have been journeying from Galilee to Jerusalem, and Luke makes a huge point in his gospel to the person who reads slowly and sightfully. From chapter 9 forward, the, the intentionality of Jesus to get to Jerusalem is at the center of Luke's presentation. In chapter 9, I mean in chapter, in verse 28 of chapter 19, it says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So this is not the first time that the idea of journeying to Jerusalem has been presented. If you go back to Luke 9, 21 through 22, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 22 that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed 
and on the third day be raised. We know that at least four different times in the Gospels, in Jesus' intentional movement to Jerusalem, he stops his disciples to let them know what's going to be happening in Jerusalem. And most of the time, they just don't get it. In chapter 9, he says, when the days, Luke does, the author, drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, this perspective, um, the phrase, I, I love this phrase, he set his face. Um, you may have heard it um, in other places as he set his face like flint. That actually is, is what comes right out of Isaiah when prophetically he's speaking of the coming Messiah and he talks about the mission that he will have on this earth and he says that he will be one who sets his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Again, chapters 13, chapter 17, chapters 18 of Luke will all present this intentional, purposeful progression of Jesus with his disciples headed to Jerusalem. He's not wandering. He's intentional. He's not traveling. He's purposeful. Jesus is on a mission. He must be in Jerusalem. And you and I, we sometimes forget there's a huge coordination of events going on here. Jesus is going to Jerusalem on a Sunday, which is the day after the Sabbath, uh, probably, as we'll see here in a minute, he spent the Sabbath in Bethany. Now he's headed to Jerusalem on the first day that you can travel to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. So in this journey so far, to get to Bethany, um, as we'll see here in a minute, Jesus has traveled probably 3,000 feet in elevation over 17 miles from Jericho to get to Bethany with his disciples. They probably arrive on sundown of the Sabbath so that he and his disciples cannot travel that day. And then it's this day, Sunday, that he and the disciples are going to enter Jerusalem. And I, I think it's important for us sometimes to remember that in doing this, the day Jesus is traveling, this Sunday that he's traveling in Jerusalem is when the flood of pilgrims are traveling in Jerusalem. But there's something else going on. That is the day they herd the sheep into Jerusalem to the temple to be sold um, to the pilgrims to celebrate the Passover meals. So Jesus is entering into Jerusalem as the Lamb of God at the time that the lambs are entering Jerusalem. Historians tell us that about 250,000 lambs would be prepared and slain in Jerusalem during Passovers at this time frame. And we're told that if that's one for about every 10 people, a family unit, that would mean that there were two to three million pilgrims in Jerusalem, headed into Jerusalem, the city swelling 10 times its normal population in that area. Amazing. Kind of reminds you of another swelling we had, right? 
You know, historians in Kansas City tell us that in our second Super Bowl parade, we had over a million people that lined the streets along the parade route. And I don't know what they gave as a number for the bedlam that was down at Union Station uh, where there were unsober speeches given. I want, you to, I want you to think of, of people, um, the excitement, the anticipation um, of the Super Bowl parade, the celebration. And, and I want you to understand that the time of Passover was very much that kind of a thing. It was a memorial. It was a time when people entered into Jerusalem celebrating that God is a deliverer, a mighty deliverer, and that he had delivered his people from bondage into Egypt. And each year they're celebrating this. But they're not just celebrating it. They do it each year because God promised a future deliverer, a Messiah who would come to take away the sins of the world, the suffering servant, the righteous king, the holy priest, the great and unique prophet. And so as they enter into Jerusalem, they have this great anticipation And so that brings us to the second thing that Jesus is doing in this text. When he comes to the royal city, the city of David, to Jerusalem, the city of peace, he comes to declare his kingship. He is not not receiving accolades. He's creating a procession. He is not letting his disciples take him to Jerusalem. He is taking his disciples to Jerusalem. It tells us in verse 29 that he, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he will send his disciples into town. And I, I thought it might be helpful for you all, uh, you know, just to, to kind of get a sense of, of what that looks like. And you'll notice that Bethany is a village that's outside of probably what you would call the the far reaches of the suburbs. Um, that's Lewisburg, okay? And uh, and then you, you move in towards like uh, maybe Spring Hill, uh, which might be uh, on the very edges, and, and, and you get towards Olathe, which used to be a bedrooms uh, community of Kansas City, and it is now, it, it, you know, uh, considered one of the suburbs. And you'll notice that there, there's an ascent going up from Bethany to Bethpage, and, and then up a little higher to the Mount of Olives. When they, re, when they crest the Mount of Olives, at that moment, there's a descent down to Jerusalem. And as they get to the top of the Mount of Olives, all of Jerusalem is beholden before them. And especially, they're coming straight down. As you'll notice, the big square there in the city of Jerusalem that the road leads down to is the Temple Mount. So it's a perfect place for them to picture where they are headed. And they'll descend down through the Garden of Gethsemane, which Jesus will come back out of the city to pray in. And I want you to notice in verse 30 the precision and the intention of Jesus as he sends two disciples to go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it, and bring it here. They will find a a, a donkey colt. No one has ever sat on this donkey. 
That means that it's an unbroken donkey. That means no one has ridden on it. That means that this donkey has not been used for an ordinary purpose. It has been set aside for a sacred task. And it says in verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. I want you just to imagine this, like, like how would you feel if you were traveling with somebody and they said, hey, you're going to come in to uh, Olathe at 151st Street. And when you get off, there's going to be a brand new Dodge pickup truck waiting there for you. It's the engine's going to be running and the keys are going to be in it. And when you get there, no one's ever driven this truck. No one's ever bought in this truck. And when you go and you stop in there and you get in it and they ask you, why are you taking this truck? You just say the Lord needs it. The Lord, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Sovereign One needs it. So those who were sent went away, got off the interstate and found it just as he had told them. We should see this as a very clear Example of the foreknowledge and supernatural control of Jesus the Christ. He is divine. He's not just a man. He's the son of God. And so what we see taking place is just what he anticipated. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? Now, there's so much in this passage in, in like, like, you know, if you're going to take a donkey, take one somebody's ridden on before, not one nobody's ridden on before. People, can you imagine trying to ride an unbroken mule? I can't think of anything that would be more discomforting. And they said, the Lord has need of it. Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem intentionally and purposefully on a colt in which no one else has ever ridden. And he's going to arrange it. He's going to make it happen just as he declares it. I hope you have eyes to see what is being revealed here about Jesus. They brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, I think it's important. There, there's going to be two use, uses of the cloaks in this passage. One is they'll spread it on the road in verse 36 and they'll spread it on the colt in verse 35. There's no saddle on this donkey. It's unbroken. And so they set some of their cloaks for Jesus to sit on this donkey. But there's something here I want you to notice that Luke makes a big point about. He wants us to see that um, Jesus is not climbing up on the animal himself like a normal person would do. He is being set on the animal like a royal king would be by his servants. 
And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. This is all happening in fulfillment of prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, where it says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. This is a clear prophecy that the Israeli people, the Jewish people, constantly clung to, waiting for their king to come, riding on a donkey. When Solomon was declared king by David, guess what he rode around Jerusalem on? A donkey. When Jehu was made king, guess what he rode on? A donkey. And guess what people did? When people rode on the donkey as a king, they threw their cloaks on the ground in front of the donkey. We know from other places, they also put palm branches down in front of the donkey. Does anybody know why they threw their cloaks on the ground? I'm I'm not sure they were looking for donkey-mudded cloaks. It's because setting your cloak on the ground before a king to walk on or ride over was symbolic of giving him the right over all that you own. It was a tremendous symbol of complete and utter surrender to the king. So Jesus rides this unbroken donkey down a heavily infested roadway full of pilgrims going to Jerusalem. He'll enter Jerusalem with all of its excitement. You imagine entering into a place, riding on an unbroken animal. How in the world could he control such a thing? Maybe only because he's the king, the true king, the Lord, the sovereign one. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, the healing that he had brought. The deaf were finding the ability to hear. The blind had found their sight. Those possessed by demons were set free. The lame were walking All of these great miracles that they had seen testifying to the power and authority of Jesus the Christ. They begin to rejoice and praise God. By the way, this is the same phraseology that Luke uses in chapter 2 when Christ is born and the multitude of the angels rejoice and give loud praise. He's painting a picture from start to finish, from birth to arrival in Jerusalem. This one is the one that has been prophesied. This is the one that we have been anticipating. This is the one who comes to bring and make salvation. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to claim that he is their king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Again, recognizing who he is, they begin to declare that he is the king. And I want to remind you that 
Many of you know this historically, but kings rode two beasts of burden. They rode a donkey or they rode a stallion. When they were coming as a king making peace, they rode a donkey. When they were coming to bring judgment and take something by force, they rode a stallion. And so Jesus, that's why there's the focus on peace here. And by the way, you'll remember that peace is the focus of the announcement that takes place at his birth. He comes to make peace between man and God. He comes to make peace with those who are alienated from God by their sin. He comes to be the Lamb of God to make a sacrifice. Now the Pharisees, verse 39, they see what's going on. They see what his disciples are doing. They see what the crowd is doing. And he sees that the crowd is beginning to think that Jesus might be the Messiah. And so they tell him, teacher, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Shut their mouths. Tell them to be quiet. How can they say such extravagant things about you? Don't you know that they're declaring you the David, Davidic king? They're declaring you the Messiah. They're declaring you the Christ. Shut them down before this gets out of hand. And here's what Jesus says. It's a quote from Habakkuk 2.11. I tell you, if they were silent, if they stopped talking and declaring what God has said should be declared about his anointed one right now, then the stones would have to cry out. They would pick up where these men would be left off. So I I, I hope that you already have a very clear picture here of what's going on. This is not some kind of accidental mistake that Jesus is kind of a good guy who had a lot of nice wisdom to share and people got a little bit out of hand and decided to make him more than he was. No, this is Jesus from the very beginning. When he chooses his disciples and begins to do ministry, he's making his way to Jerusalem so he can arrive there at the time of the Passover with all of its significance about how God delivers his people and how he used a Passover lamb where the blood was slain and applied to the doorpost so that death might pass by and he could deliver his people from Egypt. It's in all of this significance, all of this symbolism that Jesus, who John the Baptist had called the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, this man intentionally makes his way to Jerusalem, rides a donkey, and receives the praise that he is the King of Israel. And he will fulfill his purpose. During Passion Week... He will review for his disciples what he's taught. He will betrayed, be betrayed like the scriptures foretold. He will be scourged. He will be crucified as the scriptures foretold. He will be buried. And on the third day as the scriptures foretold, he will raise from the dead. All in fulfillment of the purpose for which he was sent. The third thing that I want us to realize is that as Jesus enters and goes towards Jerusalem, he's going to weep with compassion because he's not going to be accepted for who he is. He's going to be rejected. 
his people are not going to recognize him as the great king. They're going to reject him. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. The idea of weeping here, there's only two times that Jesus is noted as weeping in the scriptures. One is at the the tomb of Lazarus when he sees the great um, way in which the family is distraught and um, he feels great compassion and empathy for them. And it says that he weeps. And in both of these contexts, there's a sense of mourning in, in the Jewish culture, letting out your emotions. Um, this was not a, a subtle weeping. Um, you and I might say Jesus wailed as he shed tears over the city of Jerusalem, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Oh, if you only had the insight to understand what was happening right now. You're the city of peace. I'm the man of peace. I'm coming to make peace. If only you had known the things that are taking place today. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You know, in this passage, if you go through and circle all the times you or your, your is used, you'll notice it's a lot. It's at least 10 times. And you'll notice that he's making this intentionally personal. He's letting people know they have the opportunity to recognize who he is, receive him for who he is, and respond accordingly. Or they can reject him and ignore him or hide from him. The things that make for peace. Forty years later, Jerusalem would be destroyed. So, how will you respond to King Jesus? You know, we all have free will that God has given us. And we get to choose our response to the king, just as the crowds, just as the Pharisees, just as the disciples choose their response to Jesus. And so this is kind of where I want you to reflect uh, on Holy Week today. How am I responding to Jesus? So you may be here this morning and you may be someone who's on a search. You may be someone who's not fully committed their life to Jesus. And, and you may be evaluating who is Jesus and why did he come and what bearing does that have on my life? And so I, I would tell you that what Jesus is pointing you to in this passage is that he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He's the Lamb of God who's come to offer himself up 
as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for your sin so he can carry your guilt and your shame away outside the camp so that you can be freed from your bondage, your compulsion to sin, and he can make you a new person and give you new life and set you free. And you have to make the decision whether you will take him by faith because he doesn't come as a savior by force. He's a king that comes making peace and you have to realize the time of his visitation in your life like we have to realize his time of visitation in our world. So where are you? This, I can't think of a better time to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Second, maybe you've done that. This should be a week of you evaluating, have I given Jesus his right to rule in my life? Or is he kind of a side gig? A friend of mine once said, and, and many authors have, have said the same thing, most thrones don't have room for two kings. You know, you are on the throne of your life where Jesus is on the throne of your life. I'm on the throne of my life where Jesus is on the throne of my life. There's not room for two kings on that throne. And that would be a great reflection for you. Am I growing in my walk? Am I growing in my surrender? Am I growing in my knowledge? Am I growing in my obedience? Am I growing in my sacrifice? Have I moved from becoming a consumer of the good things of Jesus to a contributor to the mission of Jesus? Is there movement in my life? God orchestrated movement that's doing great things. And then thirdly, maybe you're here, Christ is your Messiah, you're growing, you're committed, you're even willing to suffer for the gospel. Then I want to tell you, anticipate his return. He's coming back soon. You know, one of the things that's always tied together with the cruce death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension is what? His return. It's always tied together. Because it's all one package. He comes, he lives, he dies, he's buried, he resurrects, he ascends, he's coming soon. It's a promise. What he has started, he will finish. What is incomplete will be made complete. What is broken will be replaced with what is pure and holy. And there is a day coming when we will have the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and new bodies and there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more cancer, no more rape, no more abuse, no more wars, no nothing broken. Can I have an amen? So Palm Sunday is the beginning of the promise of all the things that God has done and will do. And this Holy Week, let's take time. Let's reflect. Let's evaluate. Let's make changes in the power of the Spirit according to the Word of God so that He can use us to make an impact on this lost and broken world until he comes again. 
Amen. Let's pray. God, we recognize that um, it is so easy for us to lose sight of what's really going on in this world. It's so easy to be tangibly distracted from the things of ultimate reality by all the temporal stuff and the busyness and the tasks. Help us, Lord, not to lose sight of why we are really here, why you saved us, and what is in our future. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. Thanks for listening.